Well, we're just going to roll into it. Why don't you give me a quick introduction to you and your background and kind of what, what you're doing today? Yeah, Georgia, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I had kind of a technical background and I was an electrical engineering major and my parents got me a computer, so I coded as a kid, so I was very comfortable with that. Um, my first job out of college was doing submarine design. And then after doing that, I wanted to get more into the kind of software tech world. And so I, I wanted to get an MBA and uh, that's what brought me out to Silicon Valley to go to Stanford to get an MBA. And then it was awesome because that's where I discovered product management as a career choice. I'd never done it before. I just worked on submarine design. And the more I learned about product management back then, the more I was like, that sounds really interesting. And because I had never done it, I asked people, hey, where's the best place to learn product management? And everybody at the time, pretty much uh, university agreed that Intuit was a great place. So I was fortunate yeah. to get a job at Intuit. I learned so much, just amazing people, smart people. They've been doing it for years. You know, they've been doing that product since the DOS days. A lot of your listeners yes. probably don't know what DOS is. Yes, but, you I know, love that, right. Um, you know, but Scott Cook, the founder, came from Procter & Gamble where their job is to basically make you buy one type of soap over another type of soap. So if they can differentiate soap, you know, he, he took those consumer goods principles and market research principles and applied it to software. So it was great. After Intuit, I was a product leader at a few startups. And, um, and then after that, I kind of um, was fortunate to stumble into being like a product consultant, like helping startups as an interim VP of product. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. And one of the side benefits of that was it accelerated my learning. And then I also got involved with speaking at conferences, product events, and things like that. Um, and I wrote a book called The Lean Product Playbook uh, five years ago now. We did a five, five year anniversary just passed by. Congrats. And um, yeah. And so I basically do a mix of consulting, mainly training, to be honest with you. A lot of private workshops for companies. It's interesting. In the last, you know, it feels like in the last three, three or so years, product management has really taken off. Yeah. It's become absolutely. much more popular. And as we like to say, it's like it's hard to get a degree in it. It's hard to you know study it, um, and and so there's a demand for these kind of hands-on workshops because it is more experiential learning. So I do a mix of training and consulting. I also um, like to create product community. So for six years now, I've been running a product group, out, product and UX group out here called Lean Product, where mm -hmm. we have monthly speakers. And then with COVID, we've actually taken that online, so the audience has expanded beyond the Bay Area. So, which um, honestly, yeah. that's that's been such a cool thing to see with communities like that is that COVID's actually been an interesting, like push you to go broaden it, maybe beyond just yeah. your community, right? I love that. And we found positive opportunities. I mean, it's been great. Like I was literally with my wife, I'm like, what am I gonna do? I guess I'll take it online. And right after I published it, people from like Europe and South America, like, oh, yes. this is awesome. I always wanted to attend. And then, um, and then also my speakers, my speakers don't have to be here, right? So I can, yeah. uh, my last yeah. speaker was from Atlanta. It's awesome. Aaron Walter, head of uh, design education at oh, yeah, good. Uh, Envision who wrote uh, Designing for Emotion, second edition of his book, awesome book, Design for Emotion, came out. I was going to wait for him to come out here in December for a conference, which got canceled anyway. And like, hey, let's just do it remotely. So now the reach for not only the audience, but the speakers is global. Um, so it's been fun. So tell me about the impetus to, to write the book. I'm kind of curious about that because we, I mean, yeah. I, everybody thinks about writing a book. Dan and I have talked about writing a book. Um, you decided to kind of go all in on lean, right? Um, and creating yeah, a playbook. Really? Right? Tell, me, tell me about that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, the title has lean in it. It's funny. One product leader read the book and was like, you know what? This is really just product management. I'm like, That's yeah. Exactly. I, I read it and I thought the same exactly. thing. I was like, could yeah, you yeah, touch yeah, on yeah, agile yeah. and scrum and comp? You know, you, you hit it all in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, lean, you know, there's a big intersection of Venn diagram of lean and, and, and product management basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and I think in a lot of ways, lean startup has given a great vocabulary like MVP, you know, and mm -hmm. product market fit has made those terms more popular 
Um, so it's just helped product management. Basically, this product management book is basically, you know, I've, it, the roots of it come from basically speaking, right? So mm -hmm. in 2007, I started speaking at these conferences and I would give a talk to a group of product people and they'd ask certain questions and then I'd answer their questions and then I'd go and create some new slides to answer Same those thing, questions. Yeah. They're like, what about this? What about this? So I ended up creating more and more slides and I really enjoyed those conversations. So over time, uh, I developed a framework. Actually, in one workshop I was teaching, I had a really smart, inquisitive class and they literally like, okay, what do you do next, Dan? And then what do you do next? And then what do you do next? Like, and so on the whiteboard, I'm like riffing and writing out these steps and I realized, and that was, again, it ties in with consulting. Yeah. You know, when you work at one company, you don't get a chance to see too many products. When I was a consultant, I got to see a lot of different companies. And so I kind of saw a pattern of, Hey, obviously the specifics of each company are different, but there's a certain set of meta conditions that need to hold true in order to achieve product market fit. And so I think it was a combination of speaking and consulting to help me kind of see, Oh, there's a way to kind of create a playbook or a process, a model. The other thing is anytime you have buzzwords like MVP, MVP is the most hotly oh debated gosh. term out there, right? Uh, People get into like fist fights. We almost stopped world. using it because it meant so I many know. different things, you know? I know. Yeah, and that's what you know it's bad when people start inventing other things like minimal lovable product, uh, of minimal course. sellable product. People <laughs> yeah. start making, you know, like, oh man. And uh, so, so the funny thing about product market fit is there wasn't really a good model or definition yeah. or framework, right? And Agreed. so I was like, okay, that's the key framework of the book is the product market fit pyramid, the five elements that it takes to have product market fit. And then from there, creating a process around it. So yeah, so for me, it's just, um, I like sharing best practices. I like sharing examples with people. Um, you know, I like, you know, when I started PM, there weren't any resources around. There weren't that many, there weren't books around or yeah. blogs or videos around. And so that's again, part also the community, why I have the community just to kind of create those resources that weren't there earlier in my career, especially as PM has emerged, you know, to become more popular. The demand for PM knowledge and education has been growing like crazy. So no question. We, so one of the things that we talk about at Crema, we actually started doing adding product management to the mix of our product team. So, you know, traditionally we were a UX design agency when we right. had developers and we thought, right. man, we have what we call project managers. And we're like, actually, right. I think that's technically product management in this context. Right. How do we, right. how do we get those skills brought up? And so we, we had a young product manager that just owns saying, what will this be for Crema about yeah. six, seven years ago? And now I will say, people come in through a couple of different doors to get to Crema. Either they come in knowing that we're a UX design shop and they've seen our work, or they heard that we were a dev shop or primarily a front end right. script shop. So they, they right. work with us because of that. They stay with us because of our product managers. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's so true because it's about a relationship. It's about you know, knowing how to, to prioritize. There's so much that goes into product management. Now, you said, you said it really well, and we get to see this as an agency. As a consultant, you get to see how it's done across multiple types of companies. Right. What are some of the kind of common themes or, or the most important themes maybe um, that you're seeing product managers are focusing on or thinking about you know, today? Yeah, well I want to just build on what you said real quick too because I think part of it is as PM has emerged, like in the old days, the debate was, hey, should product management report into marketing or engineering? You know, that was like the old school. Uh, yeah, right. About that. And that and still happens we, a lot. You say that's old school, but there's still a lot of companies. That still I see a lot less of it. I mean, I, I see a lot less, but every once in a while I do run into a company where there's yeah. some weird org structure and like yeah. there's a COO involved. You know, like, <laughs> no, right. What are you here for? And there's always a reason. Every startup is kind of unique in that yeah. way. Yeah. But, um, but it's funny because um, I remember years ago when design kind of emerged and became more popular. Yeah. And for a little brief window in time here in Silicon Valley, it was like, hey, we have rockstar devs. We have awesome designers. 
why do we need a PM? Like there are people yeah. literally like scratching the head and expressing that point of view. Yeah. And so I actually gave a talk on that and it's really important. Everyone's important. And I love what yeah. you just said, like to build a good product, to build a good UX, you need a good product manager. You need a good designer. And as we know, both disciplines, you need like interaction design and yeah. visual design yeah. and you need to be good, a, a good front end dev. Cause if any four of those is weak or missing, it's not going to be great. If you look at the great products that are out there, it's because they all four of those critical functions or skills were present on the team, whether it's four people or three people or what, yeah, the skills yeah, are present, right? So you talked you talk yeah. about that being like your A team, right? Um, in your book. Yeah, yeah, dude, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I did read it. I mean, it's not That's lip service. Well, it's even from talk. That A team came from a talk a long time ago, actually. I just put it in there. Exactly. So that's exactly yeah. right. And um, it is actually inspired by, so Jesse James Garrett, Mm. who uh, was at Adaptive Path, speaking of VR yep. design. Yeah, of course. And um, wrote a book called The Elements of User Experience. I remember when I first saw his model, so I guess to go on a riff here on a side, I learned early on, I'm very appreciative of UX design as a mm. PM, right? I think that the two need to be like this. And PMs, totally agree. I don't expect PMs to design, but you better be able to talk the talk and critique designs and not say, I just don't like it. I can't articulate why. You need to be able to say, oh, the visual hierarchy is off or you yeah. know, you know, the contrast is off, whatever it is, right? Um, and so one of his early frameworks, I remember early in my career, I was like uh, in my PM career, because there were no resources, I was like a sponge trying to find what I could. And he created this amazing framework, breaking down the different elements of user experience. Um, in his book, he has, a, it's a thin white book is a simplified five layer framework, like skeleton skin, things like that. His, his full on framework is a little intimidating unless you're a framework geek, you know, and I, but the second I thought, I'm like, yes. Yeah. And then what I did is I flipped it sideways and I said, that's the A team because you need the PM to figure out the requirements and business case up front. They need the interaction designer to figure out, you know, interaction designer to figure out hierarchy, you know, information architecture, those kind of things. So you need the visual designer to get the pixels and the aesthetics down and then you need the front end dev to implement, right? So anyway, that was the, that's I mean, what made me. That's, the, that's my business model. Um, I know, so sure. Effectively, totally. that's, that's what we said is how can we turn UX into actually bringing things, these things to life? So that yeah. includes everything from research to prototyping to actually building out these front-end experiences. And a right. lot of times what we'll do, our, so our, our, our client profiles pivoted quite a bit because we used to work almost exclusively with startups and loved that space. You know, there's pros and cons. It's, it's both exciting and challenging and, and depending sure. on where you're at and who you're working with, resources and runway only last so long. And as an agency, we're always looking for how can we build longer term yeah. and more um, stable relationships. So it's yeah. pivoted now to enterprise companies. So we work with global consultants and big tax firms and things like that, similar to Intuit, but maybe some of your competitors. Um, and so what we found was if we can make that trifecta of a cross-discipline front-end yeah. team or user experience team, connecting that with maybe their in-house back off, you know, API, right. API sure. team or sure. someone who's sure. going to manage just yeah. where, the, where the app lives. That's a powerhouse. And it's really been, it's been a lot of fun. And I think you, you named it. Um, and I wouldn't just to be clear, I want, I don't want to diminish the importance of, of strong backend people and no DevOps question. and QA. Yeah. It takes a village, basically. It's a cross-functional model. But for the UX itself to excel, those four are critical, right? I mean, so yeah, you can have those four rocking it and then it doesn't scale or perform well, but you know. This is true. This is true. And I think you mentioned that in your book. You've got to consider all those pieces. And, and yeah. it is it at a certain point about, you know, uh, what are you doing early on? Um, which I think is interesting. There is a space where I um, talk, watched one of your talks where you, you kind of broke down the different levels of traction, right? Where you're right. The three if you phases have a, of proper right. market fit. So maybe talk a little about those three phases because I think it's sure. really important, especially even when we're talking to enterprises, they, they only think in the third phase, even if they're not ready. Right. For I hear you. Everybody. So the three phases real quick is like a graph. It's like 
it's the three phases of product market fit. The first is before we have product market fit, right? And every yep. every product starts out without good product market fit. You of know, course, that, that's that's the default. That's why they say like eighty percent of products, new products fail. So yeah. you start out, and then within that, there's actually before you launch. Obviously, before you launch, you don't have product market fit because you haven't launched yet. But even after you launch, you still haven't hit product market fit. So there's mm -hmm. phase one is before we launch, don't have product market fit. Phase two is after we launch, still don't have the level of product market fit that we want. And then phase three is after product market fit. And like we've got a growth phase. So it's kind of like a hockey stick curve. And just to be clear, not everybody gets to phase three, right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's nice to get to phase three. And what I find, this is one of the things is whenever you get advice or you read some cool blog posts about some entrepreneur or some leader will share a great case study. And you're like, I'm going to try that. But what you don't realize is they were in phase three doing some growth hack and you're in phase one. Right. And you try to do the growth. It's like a hammer. It doesn't apply like the, the same way. Yeah. Tool. It does yeah. not apply. And the biggest difference, and this actually to tie back to your question that we went off on the themes is I fundamentally believe, obviously when you're at scale, like Facebook or LinkedIn, they can do an AB test to like, you know, a million people in like an yeah. hour or two and yeah. see if it makes a difference. Right. Uh -huh. So AB testing tends to be this hammer looking for a nail. I was like, I mean, AB test. But when you're at the early stages of building a new product, that's the wrong tool. You can't, you can't A-B test it because you need to really get in there and understand who are the, the bottom of the pyramid, right. who are the customers, and what are their underserved needs. And that's fundamentally more of a qualitative than quantitative. That's the number one thing is when you're in phase one, you should go deep on qualitative, yeah. right? Really get in there and, 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 then, and then in the middle phase, you know, because you can't even do quant. You haven't launched. You can't even do A-B tests. That's right. There's no launched, data right? to have. Yeah. And yeah. And people try to like lean on surveys. It sounds so compelling. Hey, instead of talking to, you know, 15 users and taking 15 hours, why don't I do a survey of 300 and I'll get all the data. But the, you just fundamentally get different. You don't get the right data. Well, you don't know Eric Reese did try to champion like that. That's the way to do it is just to survey everything. Yeah. That's an MVP. Yeah. There's value. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. doesn't complete. Yeah. Yeah, you want to, and we did this, you know, again, at Intuit, I was fortunate we had a PhD in market research on our team. So oh, I like learned yeah, nice. tons from her. And the general principle is there's nothing wrong with a survey if you use it for the right thing. People try to use it for like generative research, like, hey, what, mm. you know, they, but, but the other thing is you need to do qual first to understand even write the survey, right? For example, there was, um, uh, the example I like to say is a, a very popular ride sharing app, very successful. I yeah. used them. and when I logged in one day onto the app, it said, Hey, we'd like to do a survey. You know, I'm like, great. I always, I'm always curious to know what the PMs are. Of course. So the first question on the survey, here are five reasons why people use this app. Please rank order the five. And my top reason wasn't even on the list. That's an yeah. example of a very popular survey fail. If they had done qualitative and people like to say, well, you just put an other, it doesn't know. You don't want yeah. others a hack. Other means you don't know what right. you're asking. Right. So it's interesting that, pre-launch you want to lean on the qual and that's where you get to get insights and and then post-launch you want to lean more on the quant and you still you don't want to lose touch there's there some examples but you can use the quant methods then and then it becomes more behavioral versus attitudinal the other way i like to summarize it is the oprah the the old qualitative is like i oprah, liked this yeah right? yeah because like just to give it a, a face and a name like you know imagine oprah she sits down one-on-one -on -one with someone like we are she yep. looks into your eyes she gets to she wants to know what you're all about she you know gets gets your deepest, darkest secrets. Of course. And then conversely, you know, the, the stats logic, that's like Spock, right? So the Spock is like, Hey, let's just see if we get the chi squared significance that we need or not. Right. Yeah. That kind of it. thing. Right. So the interesting thing is in the qual side, some people have a, some people or company cultures have a natural preference for one or the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And, and, and it's funny because some industries like e-commerce and gaming are very amenable to the Spock method because you're just like, well, let's try it and see and run it for a week and see if we generate more revenue or whatever. Right. So it can right. work really well. Um, and so sometimes people, they, it's like a muscle, which muscle are you more comfortable using? And, uh, and so it's just, but it's important to build the qual. And so I've been really excited. So AV testing and analytics have been very popular lately. And, yeah. and I think analytics, you ask back to your themes. I see both of those as key themes. PMs are becoming more quantitative in their use of analytics and sophistication in analytics and in AB testing and experimentation. Yeah. Which is really important for post-launch. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm also, what I love seeing is this appetite for the qualitative. I want to conduct user research. And there's, the funny thing is people want to do it, but again, they haven't been trained in how to do it. Yeah. And as I like to say in my talk, it's actually one of the easiest things to learn. Out of all the things in PM, it's one of the easiest things to learn because it involves two things. One is you got to get over it. For some reason you're shy or feel embarrassed or nervous. Like I, I'm not a pro at this. I don't know. You yep. got to get over that. But then it's like active listening. Mm-hmm. He's got to do active listening. And then secondly, how you ask your questions and you want to avoid closed questions, right? Or, you know, leading yes. questions and closed yes. questions. You, leading questions like, Oh, that was easy to use. Wasn't it right? They're going to say, yes, you set them <laughs> yeah. up. People are too nice. Uh, cl- Exactly. And also they're nice, right? Exactly. And if you give them an easy way out, they'll take it because it's mm-hmm. awkward to be doing a user, as you know, do a user oh, interview. Yeah. Are we, can I get my hundred dollars? Are we done yet? Can I go back to my <laughs> right, life? You know? exactly. so it's like, uh, yes, no, yes, 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 yes. They'll just like, you give them an easy yes, they'll take yeah. the bait. Yeah. And as I like to say, like, you know, as a, as a young, excited PM or designer, you may be like, do you like my product? And secretly, you say yes, please say yes. Please uh-huh. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. They say yes and you get all excited. <laughs> you go back to your manager, hey, nine out of 10 people said yes, they liked it. You know, so you feel good, the endorphins go off. But as I like to point out, I was like, what did you actually learn? Right. You didn't learn why they liked it. You didn't uh-huh. learn why the other people didn't like it, right? And so an open-ended, a closed-end question is one that just like is, more, is like yes or no answer or multiple mm-hmm. choice answer. Instead, we want to like ask essay questions like, what did you think about it? And it literally comes down to the words that you start the question with. If you start with, do you, or did you, it, you're going to get a yes, no answer. So instead yeah. you want to do like more open-ended. Why can you tell me what you think about this? How did you like that? And then they got to, they can't just go yes or no without thinking. They right. have to stop, think about it, reflect on what they saw. You're going to get a lot richer data. So those are the two tips, just active listening and, uh, and you know, not doing leading questions and closed questions by, by paying attention to the words you start your question with. So anyway, uh, I'm excited to see more people doing qualitative these days and an appetite for that. So that kind of leads to you, you have had that opportunity to work with um, a lot of teams and kind of uh, take in kind of maybe how they're structured, maybe even leading those teams as an interim VP, head of VP or of yeah. uh, product, right? One of the things that we talk a lot specifically on this podcast is, is kind of team makeup. And I want to go back to that kind of a team, mm-hmm. both there's the roles, right? But what are right. some of the principles? And I know this might be kind of yeah. broadening it a little bit, but yeah. what are some of the principles that you think about that really, when you see a team, that's just like, mm, they are, they're nailing it. They're just synced in they're, They care about the value. They're listening to their users. He's got the f- feedback loop. They're, they're considering the Spock versus Oprah. You know, what are, the, what are some of those principles that you see those teams are just executing on brilliantly? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. I think one is that the people trust and respect each other. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, and, 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 and the way I draw it is imagine you've got those, let's just call it three circles, right? PM, design, and dev. You've got three circles and a Venn diagram. Yeah. They can be like really overlapped on top of each other, which sure. means tight, a lot of collaboration, or they can be three, it can barely be touching or like separate. 
right. silos. That's what silos are, right? Uh, so when yeah. you have silos, it's basically, we're, they don't say we, they say I and them, right? They say, oh, we're giving this to design. Mm -hmm. We're giving this to dev. It's not a we, right? And so they primarily identify with the functional group that they're in as opposed to a cross-functional feature or scrum team. So that's, I think that's telling. Yeah. And usually, you know, you want to have respect, respect and trust that if I do my PM part well, and it's kind of like the driver model. In the beginning, the back to the AT model uh, and Jesse James Garrett. In the beginning, PM is going to be driving things, figuring out what's the market opportunity, what's the, what's the, who's the customer, what are the needs we should address, uh, even though they're driving it, they're coordinating with dev and design, right? Yep, of course. Them, so they're not throwing it over the wall. And then we pass the baton to design and then design starts driving it and driving and figuring out what the user experience should be. Again, coordinating with those people. So it's that that trust and that coordination that, that goes well. And then I think the other thing is, it can be very empowering, is when a team is clear on what's our mission, what's our objective. And that's where you hear a lot about uh, outcomes over outputs. If our yeah, objective is just to, sh to ship 20 story points, you know, that's okay. That, you know what I mean? That's different than, Hey, you know, uh, the conversion rate on this flow is only 15%. We all agree. That's not good. Uh, we want to move that conversion rate up to 30% or our retention rate is only 3%. We want to improve the retention rate, whatever, you know, so when, it doesn't necessarily have to be a hardcore metric, but when you have a hardcore metric, it can align people. Yeah, of course. Otherwise, and it kind of gives a source of truth, a North star. You hear the term North star metric. Yeah, of a lot. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, and I, so I think that's the other thing is when teams are just like, I mean, even if you have a well-functioning team, but they don't know what they're doing, or they can't agree on what they're trying to accomplish. They're just going to kind of, they might just fall into doing busy work, even though they're doing the busy work in a collaborative way, uh -huh. in a positive way. It feels right? so good. They're, they're yeah. checking some boxes, exactly. but are they actually achieving anything, right? Exactly. And so I think that's where, and I think the last thing I'd say related to all that is like, do you, does the team want to deal with reality? Do they want to live in reality? Mm. And, and I see this sometimes. Every once in a while I get a PM talking to me and I suddenly realize, you know what, like, it sounds like, it's a very political environment. It's more about the impression of doing work or the impression or how you get credit or this or that. And that's just like a spectrum of like political to like realistic, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, somebody even said, oh, your book, it's kind of like you're trying to apply the scientific method to developing products. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of my background as engineering and science. So yes, although it's risky and uncertain, yes. But the fundamental baseline of that is we're dealing, we want to deal with truth and reality, not opinions or politics, you know, so. I, I, man, there's so much, I, I, we could riff in like 15 different directions there. Sure. Cause, um, one of the things that we've been, you know, you, you ask the people that like nerd out on frameworks and that's totally us. We, we, we love a good framework. We love a good way to process and to communicate ideas. Right. And one of the things that we've been working on and similar to, you know, similar to the lean build measure, learn loop, we, we kind of came back and we said more, more closely aligned to the scientific method. We love this idea of, kind of observation and collection, then experimentation, learning. And then the last thing that we've kind of added to our loop, everybody has a loop, right? To sure. our loop is, is actually sharing. And I think that's something I'm so impressed yeah, with the scientific sure. community is that they do such a good job with their white papers or through their, you know, conferencing, et cetera, yeah. that they say, we'll all be better together if we share our research, we test our data, we, you know, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And I think that's something I'm excited to see people like you, people like Jeff Godolph, people like Todd Harris, they're, they're all saying we need to start sharing more so that we can learn as an industry sure. better. PM is becoming, yeah. how do we all, um, you know, rising tides lift all boats. How do we do this together? I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I totally agree. And because, and you get into that. So you get into the topic of like knowledge management. And so this team is getting insights and how this being shared elsewhere 
Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, it reminds me of um, when I did some leadership training at Intuit, I learned about this thing called the ladder of inference where it's like, okay, say you and I, we're both two smart, positive, well-intended adults, but we disagree on something. Sure. Why is it like philosophically, why do people disagree on the right course of action? Well, it must be because we're operating on different data. You know, maybe yeah. you've seen some survey results I haven't, or you heard something I haven't, or we're applying different kind of weighting criteria, criteria or different mm -hmm. weights. So you kind of work your way through this. And so I think that again, to flip it around, sharing data, they call it like a data pool. Like we talk about data lake in tech, but it's like the yeah. pool of data. Like what's the pool of data that you're drawing from? By sharing that information, we have a more common pool and people more likely to kind of, you know, agree and align on things versus if you don't have that common pool. And I was, it's funny because I was fortunate when I mentioned that my first job was in submarine design. That is probably one of the best knowledge management systems I've ever seen because oh, interesting. they've been, and it was all paper. I mean, back then, of it was course, paper, of course, we yeah. literally had draw file drawers of all these things. And so as a new engineer working on this new submarine, they would refer to some old letter from some previous submarine. I'd go and find it and I'd read it like, oh, they ran into these issues last time they did this on the last submarine. So here's why we yeah, want to do it this time. Right. So this whole concept of lessons learned. Right. right. Like how do you not repeat the mistakes or how do you know that that's not the main goal, but how do you leverage the cumulative knowledge of what your organization or company has done? It's especially an issue these days where people come and go so quickly with companies, mm -hmm. the number of times like somebody tries to redo something that somebody else did, you know, a year or two oh, ago, man. you see it as a consultant, you see it because sometimes I'll come and go to the same companies again and again, you realize, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an important thing. And I, you do see some tools on the qualitative side, for example, you're starting to see people say, not only do we have a platform that facilitates research, yep. but it facilitates the sharing and creating of a knowledge base. So like user testing is growing in that direction. Um, Validately, uh, which got acquired, oh, yeah, kind of yeah. in that direction. And he, he considered, like my, I know the, the, the founder of Validately, he considers it more like an insights platform. It's like, how do oh, we, right. how do we capture the insight? Yeah, of course, you do the research to get the insights, but then how do we you know, have a system to capture those insights so that, you know, and even like Sean Ellis on his, uh, on the experimentation platform, the projects yep. that he's got, like, you know, just like, Hey, we're trying these things and what's worked and things like that, especially in a bigger org, right? The bigger the org, the more it would be, it'd be well, great to have that central repository. And that's what, I think that's what we are seeing more now, right? As a pivot from the startups where we're working with probably a founding team, maybe a handful of people in the early stages, right? Uh, all the way up to now we're working with like the VP of product in an organization or innovation leader or something, whatever that title is. They're dealing with the fact that, well, I've got, I've got all of these things that we've tried or that we've right. done or that we have. And, and I'm not exactly sure who knows what. And oh, by the way, right. we've had 100% turnover in the last 12 months. I know. So yeah. what do you do with that? Yeah. And so I think it's one of the reasons I feel really blessed that uh, Crema in general has had such an incredibly low turnover. I mean, most uh, we're like a 2% or less turnover in the last mm -hmm. five years. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful in building a culture because that culture gets retained through the people that just sure. know how, how it's been, right? And, sure. um, yeah. and then that, then those practices gets ingrained and then shared. And as people come on, it's a lot easier to bring them in than when that whole turnover has happened so fast. So yeah. maybe that, that kind of talks a little bit about some of the challenges, but what, what do you see are some of the things that keep people from doing what you preach, right? When you're sure. talking about pro trying to find product market fit, when you're trying to talk about, you know, being the, the Oprah versus the Spock, what are the things that keep people from actually making it happen? Yeah, I mean, an important thing, one thing, an aspect of it that we didn't talk about yet that 
whenever I cover it in my talk, that really resonates with people and their eyes go open and they go, aha, is the whole problem space versus solution space. Yeah. Thing, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? And so in a nutshell, most of the time, many product teams, they'll jump to, oh, let's go build this feature. Let's go build this solution. And they're not clear on the problem, like what need, customer need or problem is it really going to solve, right? And yeah. so I have in my talks, I have examples of things like that. But that's the thing is it's just, and it makes sense. We live in the solution space, right? We live, we have to ship code. We, we, to, you know, we get rewarded for making things. You have to, yeah. And yeah, so the funny thing is something, every once in a while I get someone who's like, oh, you say you can never work on a solution? No, of course you have to work on a solution. Like, uh, as I like to say, designers are designing in the solution space. Developers are building products in the problems in the, in the solution space. It's really like product manager's job. If you had to say, what's your main job? It's like to define the problem space. Yeah, that's really good. Who are the customers and what are their needs and what are their underserved needs and how can we meet those in a way that's better than the alternatives? Like that is the crux of trying to create product market fit. And as you said, it was high, these are hypotheses. You form hypotheses and then you try to test and validate them over time. But that's, I think, one of the main things is getting out of the solution-itis. I call it solution pollution. Yeah. And even, you know, it's oh, funny, like the funniest thing in the solution pollution, and the funniest thing is, you know, a lot of my trainings, I'd be like, who knows the, the agile user story template? It has a blank, I want a blank so I can blank. And like 95% of the answers, of course. right? Then you pull up their Jira board or Trello, and it's, it's like when, you, when they go to write a Jira ticket, they get amnesia. Everybody, yeah, you knew it, and then you forgot it. What happened, right? Add a drop down, you know, add an API call, you know, add, add this database. People specify solutions in right. Jira, right? And that's where you can get the decoupling mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, okay, maybe, you know, add a drop down. Why do we, and, and the way to get people to bridge back and get clarity is just ask why. Oh, you're advocating that we build the, we, we use a drop down here. Why is that? Why would that be valuable for user? Oh, well, they need a way to select their shipping address. Okay, well, that's the core problem. They need an easy way to pick their shipping address. And maybe a drop down is the best way. Maybe it's not. But what happens is when you disassociate the two and the only thing that gets caught in Jira or captured in Jira or whatever system record is the solution, that's where you can get the disconnect and all of a sudden you're building stuff that doesn't matter to customers, right? Because you're never clear on it in the first place. So that's one thing I see is um, organizations that tend to be solution focused. And yep. usually when I do my training, the product team kind of gets it and then they can be a champion to kind of on their teams, get people to just ask why. The way out of solution pollution is why. Um, the other thing, so that's one, the biggest thing too, the biggest challenge I see, I've been working with a lot of larger companies these days. They believe in agile. Mm -hmm. They believe in customer centric development. They believe in lean. They want, they're not super skilled at it yet. They want to improve sure. their skill level from, you know, say slightly below average to above average, right? We're being realistic about the change management here or average to above, you know, average to way better. Right. And like you said, there's a distribution. Like there may be, oh, these six people, they totally get it and they crank, but then there's other people on the team that are more junior, less experienced, right? Um, is, you know, trying to up-level that is basically they get it, but then the management team and executives have a quarterly roadmap. So you're trying yeah. to, like, they'd struggle with the executives and I get it because you're in a public company. You got, you know, it's amazing. What I like to say is it's amazing how many features ship on March 31st. Oh, right? That's what I like gosh, to say, right? right it's like, right. cause you're doing the quarterly roadmaps. And so like the ultimate deadline is we had to ship. We said we'd ship these 20 things this quarter and like everyone's furiously racing to do this. Right. And so justifying budgets for, yeah. Justifying sure. budgets to move on. Yeah, totally. yeah. But what happens is this is the problem is, um, so at the end of the day, People want to do the bottoms up agile, uh, hypothesize, iterate, experiment thing. And marrying that with a tops down kind of waterfall roadmap that says you must launch these features by this day, March 31st, 
that's really challenging unless you're really, really good. And you, at the end of the day, you can be really good at the bottoms up, but until you reform and revise how you do the tops down, yeah. it's never going to work because a couple things happen is one, it's a tough thing to do. And I call it product accounting just to kind of yeah, give it yeah. a name. How do we know that we can really do those 20 in the quarter? It becomes this aspirational list. And it depends on the culture of the company where you actually, nobody says no to the bosses, right? It's like, Oh, can, oh we, can we get this extra one in? Who's going to like die on their sword and say, you know, actually I ran the numbers and we can only get 19 in that 20th one is just going to break the camel's back. Sorry, we can't do it. No one's going to do no that. No one knows that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, because one, they don't know it, but even if they knew it, they would be like, they have to decide, do I make the political calculus here? Do I do this or not? And so you get these, what I call aspirational roadmaps where no, it's just like, yeah, I think we can get those 20 done where each of those things on the roadmap is like maybe three or four words or a sentence. If you're lucky, that's your product yeah, definition. Yeah. And the poor engineering team got to kind of like sign up and say, yeah, we think we can get those done. You know? And as I like to say, the fidelity of the engineering estimate is proportional to the fidelity of the requirements or spec that you give uh, them. Always. If you, say, if you say to me, here's a two-word description of what we need, how long is that going to take? If I was the engineering leader, I'd give you like, you know, plus or minus three months. If instead I've got like, you know, a three-page, you know, product definition document, now maybe we can get down to, you know, two-week increment or something, right? right? And then once we break it down to user stories, we can get even more specific. So that's what I see is people that want to do the right thing, they get it, they struggle with reconciling this, this bottoms-up agile lean approach with some tops down mandated, uh, mandated product roadmap. And in, in, unless the product leadership is able to recognize right. the situation and work with the executive team, say, you know what? Because the other thing that happens is it's just resource allocation one-on-one. It's like there's a pie. Mm-hmm. Pie has 100% in it. Mm-hmm. And what happens is people like to act like the pie has 110% in it. And, and even if they act like it has 100%, what they do is they fully load the pie 100% before the quarter starts. And they say, okay, go. And right. then a few things happen. The second weekend of the quarter, some executive goes, you know what? I have a great, I just read this article. We really need a chatbot strategy. Let's add a chatbot to the roadmap. And then right. they add it, but they yeah. don't take anything else. That's, That's why exactly I call it accounting. Right. It's a zero sum game. It's like, well, you can add it. I'm, I'm a flexible PM. If we're clear on our rank order and we're clear on the effort, effort estimates, uh-huh. we can we're horse good. trade all day. Yeah. We'll horse trade all day, but we're not just going to add something in. Because what happens is, especially when you have the cultures that defer and, st- and they never say no is the poor product team goes, okay, yeah, we'll try to get that in. And, and then with they, with, with a second, they take that on their plate without realizing that something slipped out the bottom. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize what it was. Mm-hmm. And it can either be like that feature didn't make the quarter or we start cutting corners on things. And that's yep. what, you know, there's the triangle of like scope, quality, time, yep. resources. There's no, that's the physics of product development. There's no way around that. And you're just fooling yourself if you think you can jam in a feature and not affect any of those other dimensions, right? And then we wonder why it took, you know, three, four times longer to get anything done, to actually ship a product, to get feedback from users, to get to that second, third tier of, you know, uh, traction. And, and I think that's, we, we see that, oh my gosh, what you're describing is, is the, the most of the majority of the, the environments we walk into. And we actually, as we've been working on our what we're kind of calling our product culture framework because it's really we're trying to say like how do the human beings just deal with the way that we think what we do and what structures or guidelines that are, are keeping us from being able to do things or empowering mm-hmm. us to do things and one of the things that we said was i realized even we were doing it we were solutioning of course some, of course we were, we were creating a framework and we were like oh we have a solution 
And then um, right. somebody said, so who has this problem? And we were, I don't know. I mean, so it's what we- It's so elegant. It's so elegant. It was so beautiful. It's an elegant solution. Yeah, the yeah. elegant so is my we, favorite adjective. We had to go back and actually we, we made a podcast on this. We had to go back and just do everything we could to describe what are the cultures that are, are really difficult? What in a, a big portion of this, the thing that we heard the most talking to a bunch of different teams was my, I don't really trust that my boss is making the right decisions, whoever boss is. And the boss doesn't trust the team will actually. Exactly. That's right. And that's why that's exactly. And that's what leads to it. It's like, look, I'm a VP or executive. Yep. I promised my boss, probably the CEO that we Mm -hmm. launched these key features by this day. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta launch these things right there. I get the agile, I get the lean. Right. And then, then because and, and, and it, that's basically output driven. That's what we're yeah, saying. Output. Like that's build it. these features. We if, here. I'm going to come down from the mountaintop with the tablets. Build these 20 features this quarter, and we will achieve our business goals. Yeah. They have. They usually don't have don't have a high degree of confidence or a model as to why it connects the dots between these two. How do you know the launch of these 20 features? It's just kind of top down solution space thinking. Yeah. Instead, the, the if you ask, say, what's the opposite of that? What's the the good model? The good model is management and the teams agree on outcomes and metrics and things Mm -hmm. like that. It's like, Hey, look, your job, you are the conversion rate team. Your job is to improve the conversion rate. And we're currently sitting at 23%. What do we think is a reasonable goal by the end of this quarter? How how high can we get it? Oh, we think we can get to 30%. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about how, well, we have a Delta of 7%. We want to improve it. We have these 20 ideas. We prioritize them. We think these seven will close the gap that we need. Right. You know, that's the deal. And so that, that, Having agreed upon metrics and goals right. c- creates a connective tissue to bridge that trust gap where management can say, okay, you know, we set the goal and then the team can say, great, we have a goal. It's up to us how we'll, we'll determine how to achieve it or we'll recommend. It doesn't have to be completely deterministic. We'll let us go off and recommend, analyze the problem, come back and recommend what we do to solve it. Yeah. Don't dictate to me, you need to move conversion 20 to 30 and here are the 10 features you're going to build to do it. That's disempowering, right? It's just like, okay, oh, yeah. you, you gave me the goal and you told me what to do. And if I don't believe or agree that that's going to achieve it, what do I do, right? So then it's the blame game yep. afterwards. And then you get the blame loop where it's like, oh, <clears throat> we were supposed to achieve this goal with these things. It didn't. We slip it. And then it start, everyone starts pointing fingers. Well, it's because dev didn't do it. Oh, it's because PM didn't give us good specs. It's because, you know. And then we wonder why the turnover rate's so high. Right? Why yeah. do people leave? You know, it, I think it's you. You you're creating a culture where there is no reason yeah. to feel like anyone's going to flourish in yeah. anything like that. Right. Yeah. In contrast, when you have an empowered team, you feel good about the rule. Even if like right. you were shooting to improve the conversion rate by seven percent, and you only improved by five, you feel good because you were in charge of you your destiny. That's right. You made some difference. You learned. You do better next time. You know. Yeah. So. That's it. Okay, so what what would you say if you were to say, you know, there's three to five things that I, when I walk into a new company or I'm talking to a, a PM that's struggling with some of these things, what are the kind of actionable, like, here's where you need to start. This is this is what you've got to do now to just start moving the yeah. needle. What, what, are those, what are those first action steps yeah. that you would give? I mean, I think one is, you know, hopefully getting people to think more about problem space and solution space. Yeah. And that can be really subtly by just saying, why, whenever you hear someone propose a solution, you say, oh, that's interesting. Sounds like an interesting idea. Why would that be valuable to a customer? Yeah, so even good. if they can't say it, you're judo tricking it out of them. And mm-hmm. then it's their idea. It's not like it's your idea. Right? Yeah. Sounds like we're saying it's really important to solve this customer need. You know what I mean? So that's one is I think 
because this never you never get out of this trap if we stay in solution space with everything that we're working on. So one is so you got to subtly, and hopefully you know most team many teams are responsive about it. Once it once it's just an awareness. Once you bring it up, they get they get it. But you end up being the Sherpa of let's make sure we're on the problem space side, right? Kind of casually uh, doing it that way. That's one. The other is I think prioritization. Hmm. You know, the way we've been talking, we've been assuming that like, you know, hey, we're doing a good job prioritizing. Like, that's usually not the case because Super hard. It, it tends to be kind of random what we do and objective and, oh, the boss said this and this. Is. So it's like, you know, I've found that having a clearly prioritized list is super helpful, right? Even if, I, even if I'll say that, like, not everyone agrees the relative priority, just having a list yeah. is helpful. Just so that way, naming when it. Change, yeah. Yeah. When, when things change, you can be like, great, great. We want to add this new feature. That's great. Where does it go on the list? Because mm -hmm. that's just dealing with, the, again, the physics of product development and the reality. Back to the reality. We can build, hey, our designers, devs can build whatever you want. It's just up to us. Like, here's the list. Where does it go on the list? That's and it. what happens is, you know, you get some cultures where every week or two, there are new ideas being generated. They just get thrown in the mix and it's ambiguous. Well, where was that? more important than the things from two weeks ago or what, right? Yep. So having a list that's clear and visible and transparent, that helps align everybody. Because otherwise you get like this pocket of people think we're working on this thing and this is the most important and this we're kind of. So, so prioritizing and making it transparent is really important. And then I think to the extent you've got siloization going on, building those cross-functional relationships with your dev and design partners as a yeah. team, right? Just whichever role you're in, you know, reaching out and building those relationships and talking about it more as, you know, starting to use the terminology of team, like scrum team, feature team, whatever, you know, this, this is our team, our squad, whatever you want to call it, to start getting that accountability versus the functional accountability. And then the other big thing is most places, it goes hand in hand with solutionitis, is they haven't talked to customers in forever. They don't talk to customers enough and they don't talk to them. Yeah, it's been a while, yeah. right? And so a couple of simple, so that's the other thing is like, I've seen new PMs be affected by going and saying, oh, wow, it sounds like we have some theories about these problems. Has anyone, when's the last time we talked to a customer about this? Just asking it Socratically, right? You can get a lot of things out by asking Socratically, not saying, hey, why don't we talk to customers? Just say, like, hey, when's the last time we talked to customers? Have we asked customers? Have we heard that from customers? Just right. ask that question, right. you know? And then it becomes more, and there's a subtle thing where you're becoming more evidence-based, right? That's, you're becoming more evidence-based. Qualitative customer data is evidence. You know, quantitative data is evidence. And, and basically there are a couple of metrics, you know, the number one metric is just how long has it been since we talked to a customer? Just start to stop. The second you stop talking to customers, start to stop watch. It's kind of oh. like in a factory when they have the safety thing. This, this plant has operated 30 days without a safety incident. Yeah, I love it, yeah. Second you have a safety incident, you restart the counter, right? Same thing here. It's like our team has gone X days without customer contact, right? And so, you know, you don't want it to go like three, four weeks. Obviously it varies by phase, when you figure it all out, your head's down just coding. Okay, yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's okay to not do as much. But in the early definition phases, we should be talking a lot. So, so helping that team get the customer centricity and the exposure. And sometimes that involves like logistical things, like the team's down for it, but it's like, how do we find the customers? How do we schedule the customers? Like those kind of silly things. And yeah. what's funny is, we didn't talk about this, but PM's job can be very broad. Mm -hmm. And when you've got to like, you know, think about the strategy and the roadmap and prioritization, and work with your cross-functional peers and, and write the user stories and attend the scrums and all that jazz. You know, especially if your ratio is out of whack. We didn't right. talk about ratios of PMs to engineers, but I was just talking to a client the other day. They were telling me, the product leadership was telling me their symptoms. And I'm like, let me guess. Uh, uh, sure. You have like 15 to one, you know, 
engineering yeah. PMs. They're like, oh actually, gosh, it's 18, yes. they're like, it's 18 to one. I'm like, yeah, right. so how can you expect your PMs to do all these different things when they're being stretched things? So back to the research thing, a lot of places now are just hiring like some junior research coordinator to take care of the logistics and all that jazz to get it off the PM's plate. You know what I mean? Um, oh, interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And okay. you're hearing about a new role called product ops as well. It's like this enabling role. Like I've just, seen what this. What can we take off the plate that, that enables kind of like sales enablement? Kind of what can enables yep. product, but you know, take some of these things off your plate. It's an exciting space. I mean, it's, it's still evolving. I mean, we, there's a lot of things that we figured out, but there's still, I think that's what I love about it is there's a lot, still a lot to learn. I mean, it stays interesting, at least for me. Um, so I agree. As you're learning, I guess, are there some go-to resources, places, podcasts, books that you get excited about that you're going, I'm just soaking up what they're putting down right now. Is there anything that you get excited to learn from? We always talk about, we're always learning and we try to. Yeah. I, I, I feel that way. I'm always trying to learn. Um, and luckily with my lean product meetup, I bring in the world's top yeah, speakers you and do. authors. You get great, great, great talkers. So, uh, so I mainly learned from them. So like recently we had Jeffrey Moore come in. Oh, Jeffrey yeah, Moore is his second time speaking there. He's very famous for his book, Crossing the Chasm, uh -huh. which kind of explained why products can get initial traction in early adopters, but then fail to get into mass market. Yeah. I actually, his second book is called Inside the Tornado. I prefer that book because he kind of summarizes Crossing the Chasm and then he builds from there. So anyway, oh, that's what he's most known about and it's great stuff. His most recent book is a book called Zone to Win. And so when he came in, he kind of, we, he, he was like, let's talk. We were like, let's talk about zone to win. And then we talked about the mix of people. Long story short, he did some zone to win and then he did some of the old classic inside the crossing the chasm. But the zone to win, I was blown away by because back to frameworks, he basically in zone to win explained why is it that these big companies have such a hard time being successful with innovation. Yeah. And this nice four piece framework. And it, anyway, it was great. So a lot of the large companies that struggle with that, which I know, uh, I recommend checking out the framework because it's very actionable. Like just like crossing the chasm inside tornado, just so intuitive. It's so funny when you see a framework and it resonates, it just rings true. You're just like, yeah. that just makes sense. Like yeah. I get it, right? That's that. That was that. Another one was Jake Knapp. So Jake Knapp, um, oh yeah, wrote the co-wrote the design sprint book. Yeah, his most recent book was actually Make Time. That's oh, such a good book. You know, and I consider myself a pretty productive person. But I learned a lot from his book, mm -hmm. um, and the audio book is awesome. It's probably one of the most entertaining non-fiction non yeah. audio books that I've listened to because he and his co-author read it, and they're, they're just really good and funny. And it's like a five-hour read, but you get some real uh, practical framework and tips, and, and I, I feel like I improve my productivity even more um, by listening to that. So those are some things. And then the biggest area is actually I, these days I'm trying to like – go back it's funny because when i did that leadership training into it mm -hmm. it was amazing we learned about the ladder of inference like i mentioned we learned a lot about the soft skills part of pm right that's so it. it's that's like it. once you've learned okay i know how to do user interviews i know how to prioritize i know how to do a survey i know how to do analytics then you get to the point where you know again as i like to say you know the the pm motto i jokingly say it's like spider-man's model spider-man's motto is you know with great power comes great responsibility yeah, the pm yeah. motto is with great responsibility comes no power right so at the <laughs> so end of the true. day so nobody true. reports to us uh-huh you gotta be like you know like the puppet master trying to like influence people game of thrones like godfather something you gotta like you gotta cajole and influence basically influencing without authority yeah how do you do that and there's some communication techniques that are really important but I also think it, it involves knowing people and learning these software skills like emotional intelligence, right? 
and even personality theory. And so I'm, I'm having a fun time. Um, back when I did, learned it, first learned those things at Intuit, it was eye-opening. Yep. Um, and so, for example, I, like I didn't even realize, I just finished reading this Myers-Briggs that came up with Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. They actually wrote a book on it. That I didn't know they had written a book had on, no idea. Yeah. Books on it. And, and I, even though I, again, I consider myself pretty knowledgeable about it, I learned some things about it. And it was a good refresher and reminder. So those are kind of, it's kind of like more soft skill things of how do you influence uh, listening, those kind of things, you know, um, helping to facilitate consensus, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one of the, one of the operating values into it has some operating values is good ideas come from everywhere. And yep. I really believe that when you do have that cross-functional team, you know, it's not about the PM being the smartest person and coming up with the ideas. It's really about, yeah, the PM's going to be smart off some ideas. So is the dev, so is the designer, so is customer support, so is marketing. Yep. How do we how do we um, encourage the divergent thinking and orchestration of that, and then and then you know then converge and prioritize it, but more importantly get everybody bought in so that we get the best ideas. Man, I'm so excited! Once we get our framework finished, we're we're going to share it with you and see because a okay. lot of what you're talking about is 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 kind of taking those things and mixing them together towards mm-hmm. that's that's Dan and I's passion as people, right? And so it's it's a it's about that that EQ, that level of um, what's your posture coming into this situation? How are you? I remember one other resource I'd add. Sorry, it's Christina Yeah, please, Woodkey. no, please do. Christina Woodkey. So she's spoken a couple times at my meetup. Her most recent work is on teams. Oh, It's on teamwork. And she has a really cool model about that. And her previous book was on OKRs, which are popular yep, as well. Yep. So she's kind of in that intersection of team effectiveness and organizational right. effectiveness. Okay, so let's wrap up with you. So you've written your book, you're talking, you're consulting. What else is going on in your life right now? What do you want to plug? What's, uh, what can we share as, as people are learning more about you? I mean, what's going on every month? I got my meetup. I'm finding a great speaker to come in. So we just had Aaron Walter last month. Uh, this month uh, on the 23rd, we have uh, Christian Idioti from Silicon Valley Product Group speaking on good. actually enhanced product discovery. Oh, that'll be a good that's one. the term for that. That term for that fuzzy front end of the process is discovery, basically. Yep. He's gonna come yep. talk about that. So every month, you know, if you go to meetup.com slash lean hyphen product, got an awesome new speaker every month. Um, so that keeps me busy every month. And then um, just training teams, you know, just uh, there a lot of times a, a product leader or somebody will read my book and go, This is awesome, this is what we need, and they bring me in to do training. Um, I I got so busy with private workshops, I wasn't doing as many public workshops, but now with COVID, I want to yeah. do more public workshops. I'm going to be planning one probably in August that's coming up, but um, yeah, that's about it. If people want to learn more, my website is dan-olsen.com, O-L-S-E-N. That's where I post my videos, and I don't blog too much, but occasionally I do blog, um, and uh, there's videos and slides uh, and, and speaking and podcasts and things like that, so... Dan, this has been super insightful. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is, I, I have so much, so many notes that I just want to go take and kind of run off with. And uh, I think we some point might have a follow-up podcast to talk even deeper on some of these. So that's so Yeah, great. that'd be great. No, it was a lot of fun. I like the topics we covered. I appreciate it. it sounds like you, you know, you looked at some of my talks and things. So we were able to talk about specific stuff. So a lot of overlap there. So I'm, I'm excited to see the frameworks that, that you guys come up with. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>